Studentaftons podcast presenteras i samarbete med Broder Jakobs steningsbageri i Lund. But there will be no peace or mercy for Ukraine unless there will be a victory for Ukraine and restoration of its territorial integrity. I, I told, why don't you join NATO? And the answer is no, 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 we are neutral. It's, it's rather easy to become a resident in Estonia. You have to be, you have to be 40 years old. God afton och varmt välkomna till kvällens studentafton. Hjalmar Wittfeldt heter jag och jag är förman för studentafton eh, som är ett utskott som är en del av Akademiska föreningen här i Lund eh, och som grundades redan 1905 med syftet att värna det fria ordet och att vara ett oberoende forum för samtal och debatt. Sedan dess har otaliga studentafton genomförts med allt ifrån musik och filmskapare till nationella och internationella toppolitiker och kungligheter. Exempel på några av de som har gästat oss genom tiderna är Edward Snowden, Jimi Hendrix, Drottning Silvia och varje svensk statsminister sedan Per Albin Hansson. We're very happy to carry through tonight's studentafton in cooperation with Lund University. Above all, we are very happy to have the pleasure of welcoming His Excellency, the President of the Republic of Estonia, Mr. Alar Karis. The President graduated from the Estonian University of Life Sciences as a veterinarian in 1981. President Karis served as the Rector of the University from 2003 to 2007 and of the University of Tartu between 2007 and 2012. Karis was elected as President of the Republic of Estonia on 30, 31st of August 2021. Tonight's Studentafton is going to address multiple questions. Since the Baltic's neighbor Russia, the support to Ukraine has been massive. As of now, Estonia has pledged over 1% of its GDP in aid to Ukraine, which is more than any other nation and six times more than Sweden's total support. How is Estonia going to proceed when Russia is becoming increasingly hostile towards its neighbors? And what is the future of the Baltic security? Topics as such will be covered during tonight's Studentafton. The event will begin with an introductory speech from the president uh, and continue with approximately one hour of conversation moderated by the Lund University Senior Lecturer in European Studies. Anna-Maria Dutschak-Segesten, followed by half an hour with the opportunity for you in the audience to ask your questions directly to the president. Please give a warm welcome to His Excellency, the Pres President of the Republic of Estonia, Alar Karis.
Good evening, dear members of the uh, committee of uh, student afternoon and the Lund University Board, Vice Chancellor, ladies and gentlemen, friends. It is a great honor to be able to speak at an event with such a distinguished tradition. And it is a privilege to be here in Lund, an important and special place for Estonian culture, science and history. I would like to start by referring to a novel that was written and published in Lund some 40 years ago. The hero of the novel needs probably no introduction to you. It is Anders Sunesen, the Archbishop of Lund in the early 30th century. However, you might not have heard of a novelist. His name is Bernard Kangro. He was an Estonian poet and writer who was among the many who escaped with boats to Sweden in the 1940s. He settled here in Lund, where he founded and ran a publishing house devoted to Estonian exile literature. The novel, which title translates as Six Days, is written in as Sunesen's diary, looking back at his life and the time he was crusading Estonia with Danish troops. There were heavy battles, including the one where Denmark received its flag. In the end, Danes withdraw from Estonia, a decision which Sinesen in the novel deeply regrets. God has not blessed this country with peace or mercy, Congro let Sinesen write about Estonia. According to him, nothing but chaos, betrayal, misery, bloodshed, and hate that brought to the native people as various powers were fighting for control over this tiny land. This is no doubt that Kangro was not only writing about the 30th century. His words also reflect the deep and painful wound that was inflicted by the fate of Estonia after 1944. The end of World War II gave no peace or mercy to the Eastern European countries. And right now, before our eyes, we see the same tragedy of history about to repeat itself. Russia has demonstrated that it has not given up its imperial ambitions. Therefore, we know that there will be no peace or mercy for Ukraine unless there will be a victory for Ukraine and restoration of its territorial integrity. This is why we are standing so strongly with Ukraine right now. 
and also why we encourage all democratic countries to follow our example. The Russian threat will be a long-term threat. Despite heavy losses and sanctions, Russia has stocks to continue fighting for many months, as well as ways to replenish both personnel and material lost in battles. We have seen in Ukraine that loss of life and suffering among civilians is not a concern for the Russian state. On the contrary, terror against civilians is a means to make progress in the war by undermining the country's will to fight. In Moscow, such tactics are seen as legitimate. The fact that Moscow's initial military plan has been a failure, the aims of Kremlins have not changed. Those aims remain what were in December 2021, to regain dominance over its neighbours in Eastern and Central Europe and to destroy the existing European security architecture. European security architecture means that the United States is an integral part of European security arrangements through NATO and through bilateral military ties. It means a strong European Union with its own defence dimension and a solidarity clause. The European security architecture is also built on rules that protect the even smaller nation from being forced by military force or intimidation to do what the larger nation wants. How a war in Ukraine ends will decide what happens to this security architecture. We remember the alternative, no peace, no mercy. We Estonians only started to feel more secure as we joined the EU and NATO and became a part of a European family with rules and mechanisms in place to protect us. Putin's strategy for a moment is to curse us into giving up Ukraine by imposing costs on our societies. He still believes that Ukraine is more important to him than it is to the West. That is why it's critically important to prove Putin wrong, especially as by helping Ukraine, we are ensuring our own future, democratic, free and safe. Our task now is to provide sufficient military support to Ukraine so that it can restore control over the land and the people Russia has occupied. We need to raise the cost of aggression, militarily, politically, economically, enough to make Russia change its calculations. Again, very important measures have to be put in place, and sanctions are working, but we must increase pressure further. And it is also impossible, it's also necessary 
that Russia is held accountable, accountable for this brutal war. Finally, we must not lose time in strengthening our own military posture and capabilities. If you ask me, could Russia really attack NATO? I would have to say that under certain conditions, for example, if Moscow believes NATO is too slow or unable to react quickly, it is possible. So improving NATO's presence and ability to fight on the eastern flank is critical. As our own domestic efforts, by increasing expenditure on defence, for example, Finland today and Sweden becoming NATO ally will also add to the security in the Baltic Sea region. Unity and working together, this is our advantage and our strength. We hope to welcome you to NATO really soon. And we already need to start thinking what will happen after the war. How will we strengthen the European security architecture to eliminate the chances of such brutal attacks on sovereign nations? How can we help Ukrainians rebuild Ukraine and fully integrate this country to a free, rule-based world? This means help not just in form of weapons and other military or humanitarian aid. It also means helping Ukrainian people to be, keep learning and keep working in the field, wherever they are. I'm happy to read that one Ukrainian student is able to pursue a PhD in Lund University thanks to European Union's Marie Curie Action for Ukraine. Sweden became a welcoming home for many Estonians who fled Soviet terror. Most of them proudly kept their Estonian heritage while contributing to Swedish society. The books that they wrote are part of both Estonian and Swedish culture. I have already mentioned the writer Penrad Kangro. I should also mention Edgar Kant, who, like myself, has served as a rector of University of Tartu. Kant also found himself a new home in Sweden after the war and eventually became a professor of geography at Lund University. These examples have inspired us to help Ukrainian refugees and the memory of historic tragedies stop us from getting tired of helping Ukraine. It's our mission to return peace and mercy to Ukraine and the whole Europe. Thank you. Over here.
Thank you very much for such uh, insightful uh, and sobering, I would say, uh, words at the beginning of your of your um, presence and student afton here in, in Lund. Um, but I would like to start our conversation perhaps in a happier place, if that's okay. Though, however, we will definitely uh, attack the points that you already raised about the Baltic region security. But uh, I was thinking, looking again at uh, your own reference as having a scientific background and working in academia, um, if in your current position as the country's leader, the head of state, um, if your experience as a scientist and academic has any um, relevance, now I'm thinking all of us are academics or wannabe academics, is there any hope for us in the world of high diplomacy and politics? Well, it's very difficult to answer this question because um, being a scientist, sometimes uh, it's difficult to be superficial. And as a president, you have to be superficial because you don't have time to uh, go deep into uh, any topic. And uh, what you have to do is to trust your advisors and, um, and believe that all the facts are there and uh, based on, uh, on, on research and uh, scientific data. So sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. So. Uh, you um, sometimes hesitate to say some things which you are not, uh, we are not believing in. Interesting. Um, the fast pace of politics definitely cannot compare with the uh, longer, longer times of scientific exploration. But I'm glad to hear that there's still evidence-based policy making going on, which is exactly what we would hope for uh, to hear. Uh, also, I was thinking that uh, in, in your previous, previous many <laughs> uh, career steps, you have also worked for the National Museum in Tartu. And I'm very happy to say that I have visited both the city and the museum and the university, of course, we'll get back to that. Uh, and I was very impressed uh, both with the complexity of the, of the exhibition and the stories told, but also by the interplay with technology. So it was a very multimedia, very modern museum, not the type of boring presence that you'd expect. So in which way, uh, in a sense, you could think that your experience of guiding uh, the National Museum in Tartu also has something to, um, to bear on your current, uh, current um, mission, current responsibilities? I mean, it's history. I think uh, all presidents should, uh, should know the history of a country, history of a neighboring country, history of uh, the world. And being a museum director, it probably did help uh, in that sense. And, and of course, it, it's also to prove myself that I'm able to run the museum, because my wife has been a museum person for her life. <laughs> and uh, most of the arguments back home are about uh, history, about museum, museology. And uh, that's why I decided maybe I should uh, try this position again as well and, uh, and have more arguments against my wife back home. <laughs> 
Well, that must have been a very interesting uh, dinner table conversation, at least. Like, uh, what is the latest and how we can include it? And discussion around history are very important. Um, I think uh, looking at a little bit what my experience has been working with collective memory, it's very important to take into account a complex representation of the past and not a linear or simplified one. So one was the reason that was one of the reasons why I really enjoyed my visit in Tartu, though I have not been in Tallinn, so I cannot compare and give applause. It's a surprising because our, usually it's our way around. Most of the people don't visit uh, Tartu because it's only 200 kilometers away from Tallinn. So uh, you are exception in that sense. I was privileged because, um, and that again kind of tells the story of the Swedish-Estonian collaboration, that um, I was part of two different uh, collaboration programs that involved Lund University and Tartu University, and thus it was a very good opportunity for uh, myself and students that were accompanying me to discover Tartu and to discover the museum and the history of the connections between Sweden and Estonia. So I thought that was a very good starting point, both for myself, but also perhaps for our conversation uh, tonight. Uh, but um, I was also thinking uh, around this uh, this um, this idea of heritage. In which way, and you already kind of hinted in in your opening opening statement at these cultural connections between Sweden and Estonia. Um, and I know obviously of the historical heritage way back when, as much as as the twentieth um, century heritage, but. Do you see these connections playing out even today in the contemporary uh, contemporary situation? Are there specific, I don't know, cultural or um, educational or any other connections that you can think of that unite our countries in a specific way rather than the general European Union kind of way? I mean, Estonia has been run over by uh, many, uh, <laughs> many queens and uh, kings and nations. And what we call back home is a good old uh, Swedish time. And of course, there is a reason because our university, University of Tartu, was established by, by Swedish king at the time and uh, second oldest Swedish university, uh, older than uh, Lund University. So uh, it's, uh, I always remind this to, uh, <laughs> to my guests and, and especially in Sweden. So uh, it, it does connect us, for sure, and, and uh, we are very proud of uh, our university, University of Tartu, and, uh, and uh, this connection from uh, 1632. And uh, I was lucky to be a rector of university when we celebrated the 375th anniversary of our university, and uh, Queen Sylvia. Was, was present, so I had the privilege to, uh, to host her at the time. So uh, there are a lot of, lot of con connections, and I mentioned some already in this opening speech, and many, many of our um, professors have links to, uh, to Swedish University, to Lund University. There are a couple of them present who were here, became rectors and so forth. So uh, it's a very important connection between Estonia and Sweden. And we're very, very happy to have you here in our university to further establish this connection, of course. Um, leaving aside a little bit the world of academia, I think 
personally, as I'm a political scientist, I have a specific oh interest. <laughs> I hope that will reflect to some extent the interest of the public that later on will have the chance to address the president themselves. Um, but I want to steer a little bit of conversation in the arena of politics. Um, and as a general introduction, maybe, uh, as a head of state, you represent Estonia in the European Union, um, European Council, the, the highest, um, the most visionary and strategic, if you want, of the European institutions. So uh, I'm curious, how, how, does it, how, do, how does the European Council work? And which kind of, how, how do you negotiate the various tensions that are apparent, at least by reading in the media, just, for example, taking some of the most recent uh, points that, for example, the Swedish presidency has put out, and I printed them so I don't say something completely uh, in disagreement with, with my government, uh, which would be continued EU support to Ukraine in response to Russia's war of aggression, but also economy and boosting long-term competitiveness in the EU and EU um, autonomy, including security and energy. These would be some of the points, but as a, as a beginning of the conversation, how does it really work? So uh, when, when our, you are met with perhaps divergent uh, points of view uh, among the head of states? First of all, I have to make a, a correction. I am not uh, um, representing Estonia on the European Council. It's a prime minister. Because there are um, different presidents and different executive powers. That means the Estonian president is uh, representing Estonia in, in the United Nations. But in uh, not NATO terms and, and also in European uh, Council, it's, it's our prime minister. But uh, the question you ask, I already forget. So what was the question? Well, in, <laughs> well I made it so that it's very long and complicated. Uh, no, I was just like basically this idea of uh, negotiations. I'm sure that you meet your counterparts even in other settings. In which way can you approach the um, the common cause, for example, uh, towards um, uh, sanctions against Russia or so, when you know that some of the people in the room would not necessarily agree with you? And I'm particularly thinking about Hungary in this case. I mean, it's, uh, it's not only in politics, it's also in academia. I mean, people have different opinions. And what you have to do, you have to negotiate to, to, to explain why you think that your position is, uh, is, is right at the time. And uh, as far as Hungary is concerned, uh, I talked to a president of Hungary two days ago by, by phone write about um, Swedish uh, or membership of Sweden to NATO and I asked her about uh, what's the position of Hungary because uh, some time ago Hungary said that both Finland and, and Sweden become a, a member of, of NATO and then of course what she said that uh, she as a president is in favor of, uh, of uh, Sweden uh, uh, becoming a member of NATO, not separated uh, yeah. from uh, from Finland, but she also said that she doesn't have any vote, the parliament. But he, she has openly said that uh, Sweden should should become a a member of uh, NATO as soon as possible. And I also talked a couple of days ago with uh, Sauli Niinistö, your president uh, of Finland, and he said. Uh, I try to remember how this sentence was. Uh, there is no Finnish membership of, membership of NATO, uh, not Sweden becoming a member. So it's, 
he sees it um, that we that we both become member of NATO together. Unfortunately, as we as we saw, it didn't happen. But hopefully, it will happen soon. And we all understand that you, as a political scientist, uh, that uh, there are elections in in Turkey at the moment uh, or in May. And probably, um, just to be honest, probably it won't happen before May. But I'm pretty much convinced that Sweden become a, a member of, uh, of NATO uh, soon. I'm very happy to hear and that your conversation with the Hungarian counterpart also were so optimistic because sometimes reading in the media about the criticism coming from other organs in Hungary, such as the parliament or the prime minister's office, you wouldn't get exactly the same um, optimistic outlook. But I'm, I'm glad that at least someone <laughs> in Hungary uh, is still um, supportive of Sweden's NATO membership. I'm sure, I'm sure she's not the only one. So, And I called because I don't want to uh, talk to media before I, I talk to a, uh, a president. So just yeah. to get the information from uh, from right sources absolutely um, but also referring a little bit to your to your talk uh, do you believe and maybe also to what um, position of Hungary um, and not only do you believe that the support for sanctions against Russia is weakened like um, uh, again uh, one doesn't have uh, as uh, myself uh, direct information from uh, other sources than the media but for example, in Germany, there may be some reluctance to continue the uh, tough economic sanctions that currently are in place or to maybe harden them further. Uh, perhaps other countries in the European Union are now worrying about the economic costs that continue to be uh, taxing both Russia but also their own population. So do you have a feeling that um, there is a little bit of a beginning of a decline of the support for sanctions against Russia? Well, I don't think there is a decline or something uh, you mentioned. I have talked also to uh, President Steinmeier and uh, uh, talk, discussing the same, the same issue. And of course, uh, Germany is now, well, trying to support as much as possible. And he's, I think he's number three supporting Ukraine because uh, as a huge country, it's probably difficult to move, move a boat as, <laughs> as fast as... Uh, it's possible in, in smaller countries. But of course, if uh, it's getting difficult in your own country, I mean, you have to accept the opinion of your people. So that's why it's important to continue as, as, as much as possible and uh, to support Ukraine right now with weapons, with, uh, with, uh, with sanctions and, and, and so forth. Um. How has been the support of Ukrainian refugees in Estonia? Has the government provided them with, uh, so to say, equal access to the labor market and economic support as they arrived? Or how, how did the, the Ukrainian refugees been met in Estonia as they arrived? I mean, there are more than 60,000 uh, Ukrainian refugees in Estonia. That makes it uh, around 5% of our population which is a quite, quite a, a big number. Of course, you can't compare with Poland. They have uh, uh, 3.5 million Ukrainians living in, in Poland. But for Estonia, it's, uh, obviously, it's uh, quite, a, quite a number. And I was surprised that we are so open-hearted, that we, we're really uh, trying to help uh, Ukrainians, because we are not, 
<laughs> we're, not, we're not doing much with, with each other in, <laughs> in Estonia, but uh, but uh, yes, we provide uh, uh, them uh, schools. We provide education. Of course, living in Estonia and learning Estonian language is uh, is is rather difficult. And uh, we have also a special school, which is called called School of Freedom for Ukrainian uh, refugees or, or children, specially established uh, for, for them. So we are trying to, uh, to do the best and giving also uh, apartments, flats. Some of them are living on telling uh, boats and, and so forth. Mm. And we are trying to provide also uh, working places. So, uh, but of course, we are refugees. They are a bit broken, obviously, uh, and and most of them want to go back to uh, to Ukraine. But it's uh, it's getting more and more difficult because there is no home. Yeah. It has been destroyed. Because myself, I've been to Ukraine twice, two days uh, as president, two days before the uh, escalation of war. It was 22nd of uh, February, and and also um, two months later. So I have seen this. It's one thing to see this, uh, what's happening on TV, but another thing is to be on spot. And you see all the ruins, you see what these Russian tanks have done there, you see children or kids playing on ruins and, and so forth. So it's, uh, it's not pleasant and that's, it's getting worse and worse. Yeah. We've seen all the reportings again, myself, I've only indirectly seen that, but um, Lund University has received several uh, universe, uh, se several counterparts, uh, um, academic researchers from Ukraine, and as you mentioned before, students as well. And their accounts are also very very difficult to to understand and to take in at an emotional level because it's it's very yeah shocking basically. At least that, that's the word that comes to mind. So, uh, and. However, I'm a little bit concerned, and the reason why I have the opportunity to interact with you is because you bring another perspective from the, to the Swedish debate, is this persistence of, of solidarity. Uh, you also use the word solidarity, and I think it's really appropriate here. But one of the, one of the trends that we have seen looking at uh, migrant reception or refugee reception in other crises previous to the Ukraine one has been an initial enthusiasm and support, and over time, a decline both in the public sentiment and in governmental, uh, financial, or other economic support. So I was just curious if uh, one year or more than one year into the conflict, if you perceive uh, this as a potential threat, that there will be the same kind of decline in solidarity, both perceived and enacted towards the refugees from Ukraine? I mean, at least in Estonia, the percentages haven't changed much, to be honest. So, uh, and they are going up and down and depends on the methodology you use asking these questions. But of course, as I mentioned already, it's important to put all the effort to, to end this war as, as soon as possible, because otherwise it's going to be a, a, another frozen conflict in, in, in Europe, or we have another kind of grey zone. So uh, this is what we, we don't want. It, and it doesn't affect only um, neighbouring countries. It does affect also uh, Belgium, Netherlands, uh, Sweden, and, and so forth. So it's not only the so-called problem of, uh, of, let's say, Baltic states or, or, or maybe uh, Romania. It's also a problem of the whole Europe. 
did you perceive that the further you, uh, one goes from the eastern part towards the west, the uh, perceived importance of the conflict declines in your discussion with your counterparts across Europe? In a way it does, but I, I, I wouldn't say Europe, but if, of course, if you go to Costa Rica and ask the same question, you, uh, it's so distant for, for them. And of course, another thing which we haven't um, done well is uh, it's, it's so-called uh, Global South. That means Russian propaganda and the influence that uh, what Russia has, let's say, in many African countries. Yes. It's, uh, it's something we, uh, we didn't expect. That means we didn't put much effort to work with, with these, uh, these countries and to explain uh, what this war is about and who is uh, to blame. So uh, this we should do at least uh, now. And trying to do, I, I also wrote an article to one of a uh, uh, African newspaper in Nairobi about uh, about this war, as well as Estonia as a small country have been also occupied, and how we we developed after we uh, get our freedom, or got our freedom back. So it's uh, it, this small step might also help, but uh, we missed that chance because Russian propaganda is far ahead of what we do. So, uh, and we uh, in Estonia also uh, realized back home because there are also Russian-speaking minority and then some of the elderly generation, they did, uh, they did watch Russian TV and then what we, we did close down. And we not only did close down the Russian TV, but we also opened a new TV in Russian language, also uh, in Estonia. That means using European money and our our own resources. And we opened this channel already in 2014. That means to get the proper information or evidence-based information from uh, from from the TV. And also, uh, for free, um, France 24 and Euronews in Russians for for these people. But of course, if you uh, if you uh, talk to these people, uh, our people, which are Russian speakers, that means you see that the elder generation, they more tend to watch uh, and Russian TV and pro-Putin and the younger generation who have access to uh, other resources and uh, social media, they have a different opinions. And you can also see that families are broken in a way that kids don't talk to parents and, and vice versa because of this war in Ukraine. Russia propaganda is indeed very pervasive and through social media, as you said, um, in, in my own research, occasionally I, I engage in uh, social media analysis and one of the things that emerged is their um, targeting, micro-targeting, not European or Western publics, but as you already mentioned, uh, countries from the global south, like Brazil, South Africa, with whom uh, Russia and China already had a military event, um, as well as Indonesia. So they were able to uh, translate their messages in the country, in the language of these countries, in order to provide an alternative uh, view, and apparently um, still navigating some Cold War waters, invoking the Cold War solidarity of the mm -hmm. non-aligned movement. And it was interesting to see how this heritage of the Cold War translates differently in the eastern part of Europe and, let's say, in the global south, that it carries different memories and alliances. And it's also, I mean, the colonial past. I mean, that means uh, for, 
some countries it's very difficult to go to Africa and start explaining what this war is about because they have this colonial past and let's say France and some other countries. That's why it's also a chance for, for, for us. We, we, uh, we, we haven't not have this kind of uh, for past to explain. Of course, we're a small country, but uh, together with others, it, it um, can be done. Yeah, you have a vantage point to address um, the um, from a colony to another colony, even though, uh, of course, Russia would not want to think of itself as a colonial power. But going back to the propaganda, uh, it opens up an interesting uh, other field of questions that uh, I was thinking we can bring up connected to this digital realm. Um, uh, Estonia has been a pioneer in uh, digitalization and is con continues to lead the, the, lead the way for uh, European countries in general and not to mention in the Eastern context, definitely the most advanced, including when it comes to e-democracy and so on. But uh, the fact that Estonian communication and Estonian politics and Estonian economics is so digital friendly, uh, do you think that it also contains a higher risk, a higher vulnerability to the type of Russian propaganda or even Russian cyber attacks? We witnessed, or we, we actually um, had this cyber attack uh, in 2007. So that's why we also are um, trying to explain to the whole world that this cyber security is extremely important. So, uh, and we are, in a way, quite advanced in, in that sense. And we also assisted Ukraine to, uh, uh, as far as cybersecurity is concerned. So we are prepared because we, we get continuous attacks uh, from, from Russian side, let's say. And it's 24-7, I mean, it's because it's not only from Moscow, but uh, the attackers are, can be anywhere. But uh, we are able to protect ourselves and even presidential uh, web page has been attacked, so, uh, but nothing really happens. So we should uh, put also a certain amount of resources uh, to uh, cybersecurity uh, and to develop these cybersecurity issues. Um, and thinking about, again, this kind of um, e-voting and electronic or digital democracy, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Estonia was the first country in the world to allow uh, electronic voting in the early 2000s, first in the local elections and then in the parliamentary elections. And for me, this was revolutionary, I mean, for me and for everyone. Um, so, and this has only been more cemented. It's almost a regular, nobody lifts an eyebrow. It's just the normal thing to do, whereas here in Sweden, um, there are still quite many concerns about the feasibility of such electronic voting. Do you think that Estonians, uh, Estonia's example could be transferred uh, to other countries? Again, Sweden is not a very large country either, so size-wise size and in terms of infrastructure, they are comparable. Do you think there are some lessons to be learned? I mean, also in Estonia, some people are concerned because so we had recently a general election. Yes, just like... In <laughs> Estonia and... There are some uh, parties who, uh, who uh, went to court. Uh, of course, they lost. But, uh, but anyway, we should also think how to make this more and more uh, visible, what's happened in this, in this uh, black box. But 50% or even more are going to, uh, to vote electronically now, including myself. And it's, it's not much difference between the generations. 
Because sometimes we say that the older generation, they, you know, they didn't know how to work with a computer. But it's uh, pretty much the same. And uh, myself, I, uh, as I said, I, uh, I also wrote it electronically. But if you don't trust the system, you can always go to the booth. And that means uh, election day, we can even change your mind and, and, and vote uh, on, on paper. So uh, it's not that that's only e-voting. You can always go to, uh, to, uh, to the booth. And so the you can change. You can first vote electronically, and yeah. then on the day of the election, you yeah, can... Yeah, basically, this is what you can do, yeah. I mean, if you, uh, if you have friends, or I don't know, parents who tell you they made the wrong decision, <laughs> so I don't know. This always because persuasion. It's getting, more, it's getting more and more difficult to choose, actually, because the parties are getting almost the same. The same uh, social dimension and, and, and so forth. So uh, there are no kind of right-left anymore. Um, actually, I was thinking also about uh, the position of a president in Estonia, that it is politically non-affiliated, so you personally do not belong to a political party. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, it's, uh, on my webpage, it's, it's written down uh, politician, but I have, uh, I have never been in, in politics in, in that sense. So it's, uh, <laughs> I am independent. Well, it uh, makes my life difficult, but still. <laughs> so you have to appeal to yeah. everyone, yeah. <laughs> or at least to a majority. But uh, even, even if you're a politician, you have to give up this... Uh, this part of your... Of, of your, affiliation, yeah, yeah. I see. It's interesting. Again, we are a kingdom, so we don't have to worry about, <laughs> about at least this aspect. Uh, so maybe there's some advantages uh, to that. Uh, again, I have a long list of questions, and I'm uh, fearing that the time is running out, and all, all the other questions will come at you from the audience. So I'm uh, consulting my, my notes just to make sure that I am not missing on... I'll give yes and no answers. <laughs> no, please. Uh, we need the richness uh, of your your thoughts. Um, you already touched upon uh, upon the uh, uh, accession to NATO, uh, and you also mentioned that today, today is the day when Finland took this definitive step, which is, of course is revolutionary, um, not only because Finland has 1,300 kilometers of border with Russia, which is an impressive amount, but also because of historical uh, legacies, including uh, the um, Russo-Finnish war, uh, and so on. So, of course, in a sense, the step may be perceived even bigger f for Finland than for Sweden, if we look historically, this type of um, alliance uh, joining. Um, but do you, feel, do you think that, uh, from a Baltic region security point of view, that uh, now that Finland is a member, and of course the Baltic states are a member, Poland is a member of NATO, that by being surrounded, let's say, by NATO members, Sweden's security doesn't feel so threatened anyway, even if Sweden formally is not a member of NATO? Or do you think that formal membership will eventually be the ultimate warrant in face of a Russian threat? Well, I guess a formal mem membership is important because even before Finland and was n not a member of NATO, we did collaborate, uh, and uh, militarily, I mean. But but still, you, uh, well, I was in Sweden and, and Finland. My worst, first visits for uh, neighboring countries, it was 20, November 2021. I was here in Riksdag, I talked to your politicians and, uh, and uh, your politicians were very worried what's going to happen because of Russia and the security and, and, and so forth. And I, I told, why don't you join NATO? 
And the answer is no, 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 no. We are neutral. We never join NATO. So, and the same was in Finland. I think 23% was, uh, was pro-NATO at the time. But after five months, and in the war in February, everything changed. So things hap might happen very quickly if you, if you realize the threat is there and you also realize that the only way to, uh, to feel secure is to, is to join this alliance it, because it's a defensive alliance. And uh, we joined 19 years ago and in 2004. So uh, we have been there quite a while. And uh, so uh, it's, the only, it's the only way being a neighbor, a neighbor of Russia, because for a small country, even if you put 5% to, to, to military purpose or 10%, it's not enough. So you, know, you need friends and you need uh, alliance to, uh, to protect, you, protect you if needed, and hopefully it's not going to, uh, to happen. Because if you are strong, Russia won't start this kind of war against NATO state. And I guess also if, uh, if Putin, uh, would have expected this kind of uh, defense from Ukraine side, mm. I, I don't think he would have attempted to, to attack Ukraine. So, Yeah, many people say that uh, we have to trace back this, uh, the 2022 invasion to the 2014 invasion of Crimea and the let's call it lax uh, response that Russia received then. And also maybe it's a joke, but maybe it's also serious, like uh, what Putin has done for European unity, no one ever has Absolutely. succeeded in doing, in the sense that in the face of a common and very palpable threat, countries that were slightly more reticent uh, in terms of European security, but also in terms of other form of European cooperation now have been emboldened to, uh, to really go forward uh, and activate those connections. Also in your talk, you referred to this idea that NATO is one, uh, one military alliance, but you also mentioned this idea of European uh, defense. Can you elaborate like, how, what, is, what is the vision that Estonia would promote in terms of the European side of security and defense? I mean, we, also, we have to put our, our money to, uh, to defense ourselves, but I don't see that we should have another kind of alliance in Europe and defense alliance, that means uh, NATO is enough. So whatever we do, it should be kind of, you know, do it together with, with NATO. So, but of course, countries should put more, more, more money or military budget to increase military budget because Estonia is 2.7 at the moment. It's one of and the higher percentages yeah. in, in... But of course, even uh, I guess Germany agreed now to, to increase to increase uh, his uh, military budget and of course in money terms it's completely different, uh, different number compared to uh, small countries. It's interesting again going back to our, the beginning of our conversation and the importance of history and, and uh, stories that one tells about themselves, how the historical past of Germany has played them such a trick in the sense that their desire to avoid any kind of conflict and to act in a pacifist way thus not arming themselves has now had the complete reverse effect on peace in Europe. And it doesn't happen overnight. I, I, as I said, I talked to uh, President Steinmeier. He has been traveling around and talking to uh, different CEOs of different companies. And they're now trying to switch from to military uh, in industry again, 
but it doesn't happen overnight. That means it does take time. And even if we provide weapons to, uh, to Ukraine, we need also weapons uh, to protect ourselves. So that means we should, we should make this industry run much, much faster. Yeah, the, it was the same discussion also in the United States that they're, they have to calculate what they keep and what they can give away. And of course, that's the case even for less, um, less militarized uh, economies, let's say, like indus military industrial complex, less, less strong. I think we can leave the military and security topics, though. They are very important. And of course, as a as person with an interest in politics, I would continue to uh, turn to them. But uh, as we are slowly approaching the end of our conversation and opening up to the conversation to the general public, I was thinking to, again, refocus uh, a little bit and go back to the to the place where we are, which is a university, and to the public that we have, which is, to a large extent, uh, student-focused. Um, so I was thinking, as a, in a sense, almost as a sign of wrap-up, what kind of message do you have for the students, the younger generation that uh, are here gathered uh, to, uh, to the student after? Well, I always say, go out and see the world. That means not only stay here in Sweden, but uh, travel and study abroad and, uh, and come back again. So uh, it opens your eyes. If you are going to a, um, do a doctorate degree somewhere else or, or even master degree and, uh, and uh, in different places, different countries. I had the privilege to be in different countries and different labs in, in Europe. And, uh, it opened my eyes, and it also opened my eyes of my kids, uh, who went to, uh, to different schools in, in different countries. So uh, they are very thankful that um, I had an opportunity to work in different institutions. So yes, this is my advice, and study here. It's a very good university, as you all know, but, uh, but still, you should go also out and then come back again because, uh, I mean, Sweden needs you. Yeah, maybe go and visit Tartu University, uh, which is again our, uh, a very good, but also other universities in Estonia and elsewhere. Thank you so much for a very interesting conversation that I'm sure we could continue even further, but I will stop here. And um, uh, the procedure is as follows, uh, for those of you that uh, have not attended a student afton before. Uh, Everyone gets one question, uh, so... Uh, that means 200 questions? Uh, <laughs> which they can choose to uh, use it or not. Uh, and uh, when they uh, will be given a microphone uh, from our kind um, uh, student collaborators, they should uh, tell their names, uh, like who they are, and state the question relatively briefly. If the question is too elaborate, I'll reserve the right to intervene and privilege the answer. So now the floor is open and uh, you can raise your hand and uh, um, I will try to manage there? the questions for this process. I will have to stand up uh, so I can see everyone. I think the gentleman over there was the first. Den här afton är sponsrad av Broder Jacobs. Broder Jacobs har blivit utsett till Lunds bästa café och är beläget på Klostergata 9. Jag som studenthafton och inför skaffa ett nybakade bröd och era rykande färska bullar. Ingen annanstans än hos Broder Jacobs. Thank you. Can you all hear me? Very nice. Thank you for the nice speech. 
I have a question. My name is Hardy, by the way. I'm Estonian, studying here in Lund. And my question is tightly connected to university studies in Estonia. Because, uh, you know, I know that in Estonia you can study for free if it's in Estonian. But at the same time, the English programs have a tuition fee. So I'd like to get your opinion on this as well. What are the strengths of having a tuition fee? And what are also the weaknesses of having a tuition fee on the foreign language programs? Thank you. Thank you very much for this question. Uh, it's uh, easy to um, to ask these, or to answer this question because uh, there are a number of rectors here and uh, current rectors, so they know what's what's going on. Um, of course, it's now it's uh, without a fee if you study in Estonian, as you said. Um, I am uh, I'm advocate that you should pay at least some fee. And the difference between Estonian instruction and, and uh, English instruction, I don't think it's a wise, wise idea because uh, universities are smart enough to find ways to, to raise money and this is not the, it's not the best way to... Because what happens is that you have um, university professors from abroad, you have students from abroad, you get money, but uh, you see the, the students, they go back again to their own countries. And this, this happens, happened also with, uh, with Finnish students who come over to study uh, medicine and, and veterinary medicine. That means they're supported also somehow by, uh, by Finnish government. And uh, they study in Estonia, but they go back to, to Finland to, to become doctors. So uh, it's, it's not easy to answer these questions, but it's very difficult to turn this back again, especially when you have neighboring countries where there is no uh, student fee, like Finland. So it's a discussion point at the moment. And, uh, but people are talking about partial fee, that you pay something, but not the total fee. Thank you. Then we had a question over there. Hi, uh, my name is Amir. Uh, I would like to start by thanking you, thanking you for, for being here tonight. Uh, I have to admit that I'm a bit uh, confused, uh, maybe because of Swedish political system. Like it was discussed before, we don't get to choose our head of state. Uh, we have a king. But what does it take to become Estonia's president, especially since you said that you haven't been in politics before? I know that parliament uh, president got elected by parliament, but... Uh, yeah. Well, I also stand up. <laughs> and, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's rather easy to become a president in Estonia. You have to be, you have to be 40 years old. And uh, of course, you have to have a certain support. Uh, so, um, uh, and that's it. You have to be in front of parliament and you have to have two thirds of, uh, of, uh, of um, votes from a parliament, so uh, that's, that's it. So uh, that is a discussion. <laughs> that, so uh, simple, you make it, it so, simple. so simple. It is simple, it's not that difficult. I've been elected for my whole life, uh, becoming a professor for, and, and a rector and, and a museum director, it's all for five years. So <laughs> I'm used to that, so it's, uh, it's not that difficult. But of course, in Estonia, there is a discussion, it's ongoing discussion that uh, residents should be elected by... Uh, direct votes. Direct vote. So, uh, but that means you should also maybe... Um, maybe change our constitution because uh, just being a uh, president with power from uh, from uh, from your people and 
not attending the European Council and <laughs> NATO, it's, uh, it's maybe not enough. So. Yeah, because of the presidential nature of the, uh, the parliamentary nature of the republic, there's less role. But in other other uh, parliamentary republics, do the same, like you mentioned before, Germany and uh, Austria and some others. I think there was a question in the back. Um, yes. Hi, uh, my name is Nicholas. Thank you for being here. I had a question about NATO. You talked about NATO being the only alternative for defense in Estonia. How do you see the future of NATO? Should the United States drastically reduce its engagement to, in Europe. Does NATO still have the same role or, or would that be uh, a venue for more European-based cooperation? Well, again, US presence is important because, as you know, probably 70-80% of, of money comes from US. So that means unless you don't, don't increase our military budget, we should rely on, on, on US. So it's simple as that because uh, the presence is important because they put so much of, uh, of resources uh, in NATO. Yeah, it is why contextualizing this is very important with a potential Republican president in 2024 and a more reluctant uh, commitment mm. to European security or Russia deterrence, things can be different. And also just uh, to say, like, maybe Trump was right. Am I, am I even correct to say this publicly? But um, uh, Trump was right in on one, maybe one little point. If he was a president, there was no war, yeah? Uh, not necessarily, but if, if the country would have spent 2% uh, of uh, the budget on defense as he um, actually demanded, perhaps the countries would have had a more, more arsenal to contribute and less security delays. But that was a side comment. Um, other questions, please raise your hand. There is um, a person towards the columns. Yes, yes. Thank you. Um, hello, um, Felix. I have a question for you. Um, what did you? What made you decide to become president in the first place? That was a phone call <laughs> from a president of a parliament, or actually from a well, leader of one party, and uh, he called me, and I said no, no way. And then I went home. I talked to my wife, and I did hope that she would say no, no way, but uh, she was just neutral. So then I received another phone call. <laughs> and being a, a scientist, I was just becoming curious. What does it mean to be a president? <laughs> so I, I, I said yes, and I started this, this um, whole procedure. And um, not really surprisingly, uh, but I, uh, I became a, a president, uh, I think, of the second round of uh, election at, in the parliament. I was the only candidate, so... Uh, <laughs> so some, some people say that the good old Soviet times are back, <laughs> but that, is, uh, that you have the only candidate. But uh, the Soviet, it's different, because uh, in Soviet times you knew that this guy is going to be a, a president. But in our case, uh, nobody knew, because you had to have had to have two-thirds of, of, uh, of um, parliament members also. It's probably very difficult to find a consensus candidate. I think this is what would explain a lot of the s success. <laughs> There's a question over there. Hello, uh, my name is Johanna and uh, I'm, I would like to thank you for being here tonight. Uh, and I have a question. What do you think that Estonia could learn from Sweden and vice versa? Well, a lot we can learn from Sweden. I mean, you are 
you are front runner in, in green technology and green thinking and, and so forth. And, uh, and, and also social security system is much, much better than in Estonia and, and so forth. And you are also digitally advanced. It's not only, it's not only Estonia. For Estonia, it's becoming more and more difficult to, uh, to, to keep up because it's, it's always with a small countries. You can start something, but then in big countries, um, they are slower, but they have more resources. And that means you have to find another, another thing to be the first one. So, uh, but we're trying to keep up and uh, not on everything probably, but to find these focus areas we are, we are good at. Also, the fact that you can allow digital citizenship, for example, I think it's an interesting... Yeah, that's uh, another thing, yes. So. Interesting addition to uh, attracting and maintaining the talent pool and avoiding this brain drain that sometimes happens with smaller countries. Yes, further questions? I'm not... I do not see, maybe all the way in the back. Um, and we are, we are very good at generating unicorns. So there are nine of them already, so... Uh, or ten even. I think uh, all the way in the back. Yes, thank you. Hello, my name is Alexander. Uh, I would like to start by thanking you for an excellent talk, Mr. President. Uh, I was wondering if we are fortunate enough that Ukraine manages to hold on and win the war. Can the Ru Russian Federation, as we know it, survive? What do you think will happen to Russia if Ukraine actually wins the war and takes back its territory? Actually, I'm not very much concerned what happens with Russia. First of all, we have to yeah, win this, this war. But some people are afraid that you know, anything can happen, that you know, Russia will disintegrate or whatever. I mean, we shouldn't worry. We have seen it already in the uh, beginning of the 90s. We all, I mean, Western world were also worried what's going to happen when Baltic states uh, become independent again. So nothing really happened. So uh, we, are, we shouldn't be worried about uh, Russia. It's probably going to be another leader, another leader. And, but um, maybe I shouldn't say that, but, but still this, this imperial gene is there. So that means we have to be, we be, we have to be careful. Yes, there was a question also further back from, I thought, I saw a hand. No? Oh, I, ah, yes, here in the front. Hi, thank you for a great talk tonight. And my name is Victor, I'm a law student here. My question is regarding NATO and Article 5. So do you really trust the US to protect a smaller country like Estonia if it would be attacked? I trust NATO. So there is no reason uh, not trust. I mean, and, and one thing, we don't want to test it. So that's why we, we should make sure that we are able to protect ourselves. And that means uh, we don't want this, uh, that Russia would anyhow test this Article, Article 5. But in a way, yes, we do believe otherwise. What's the point being a member of NATO? Um, yeah, I, if I may also just comment really briefly, it's about credibility. So without credibility, it wouldn't be any uh, deterrence. Yes, some other questions perhaps that I have not... Yes, uh, yes, in the back, please. Hi, my name is Elias, and I would also like to thank you for a really interesting hour. Uh, in the beginning of uh, the evening, it was stated that uh, Estonia has 
been pledging more than 1% of its GDP uh, in military aid to Ukraine. Why do you think that is possible for Estonia, but not for other countries? It's not, uh, Estonia is not an exception here. And so there are a number of other countries. As I said, people think, let's say, Germany and, and France, that they don't put enough uh, uh, money to Ukraine, but they do. And sometimes you don't see headlines. And the same applies to, uh, to let's say, to Finland, neighboring Finland. So uh, I think everybody is trying to, to help as much as, as possible. Sometimes you find headlines, headlines sometimes you, you don't. So, uh, but of course, there are some countries who, who put less. That's, that's true. Other questions? We are maybe having time for two questions. So if you have been harboring one, oh, f even further back, there is a, there's a hand raised. Hello, my name is Dag. Uh, thank you for a really interesting hour. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are on the potential of uh, nuclear weapons used in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and how that might uh, affect the conflict, but uh, also the region in general. In a way, it's a difficult question, but I, I guess uh, it's not that easy as you saw in movies, that there is a button and the president goes and pushes the button. There is a procedure, so it's not that, that easy that uh, even President Putin is able to, to push this uh, button, let's say, during the night or something. But then, of course, uh, and, but Russia is not the only one who has a nuclear weapon. France has nuclear weapons, so, uh, but nobody would like to test, and I do hope that even Russia is not going to, uh, to, to test, so. Uh. Yeah, they're very strong on the declarative level, but so far careful uh, with the implementation. Hopefully it will remain like that. Um, I think we have the chance of a last question, if my timing is correct. So, uh, yes, here in the, here in the, ah, oh. there was two. Okay, please go ahead, yes, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, I'm of Estonian offspring. I'm a little worried about the region of Nairva. Many Russian-speaking people. Is there a risk that Russia could, some, so to say, try to save these poor Russian people in the Nairva region from the dominating Estonians? I, I don't think Norway is going to dominate Estonians, but they are also part of Estonian... Uh, uh, society. And there are also people with Russian passport, there are also people with so-called nonsense passport or grey passport no, with no citizenship. So we don't have Russian party as such. But of course, as I said, there are people who are under influence of, uh, of Russian Federation and uh, propaganda which comes from, from that side. So, uh, and of course, we uh, have been trying to integrate uh, uh, these minorities to our society. It's, it's not that easy, to be honest. Very young generation are easy to learn Estonian language, but the older generation, they don't. And uh, it takes probably more time than 30, 30 years. We, uh, and this problem doesn't uh, fade away. That means you have to deal with it. You have to uh, put effort and resources to, uh, to integrate uh, uh, these minorities to our society. 
Um, yeah, and also that makes probably the, the relations with Russia even more complicated. Um, there was a question here in the front. Yes. Uh, yes, hello. Um, following up on the question about um, Ukraine reclaiming lost territories, uh, let's say Crimea, for example, if they manage to do that, uh, how would you suggest the Ukrainians should approach the situation regarding the population of pro-Russian Russians who have moved and settled in the ter territories, uh, considering Estonia's own uh, history and uh, populations? You mean Russians uh, in Ukraine, or what, what was the question? Yeah, pro-Russian Russians who have settled after the invasion of, for example, Crimea. I mean, it's very difficult to say, because we, we, but in Estonia, what do we say? It's everything is language-based, but if you go to uh, Ukraine, it's not that, that it's language, it's the distinguished, because there are also many Russian speakers in Ukraine who are pro-Ukraine and fight for Ukraine. So, uh, but what's going to happen in Crimea? It's, uh, it's up to Ukraine. I mean, uh, it's, not up, it, it's not us who are asked to decide whether to give up Ukraine or, or fight for Ukraine. It's up to, for, for Crimea, it's up to Ukraine. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, some other people that wanted to ask a question. I think there is a person back and towards the columns. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Sophie, and I was wondering if you have met your Russian like counterpart during the last year with the war, and if so, how was that meeting? I haven't met him. <laughs> Never in my life. <laughs> and uh, I don't think that I should, there is any reason to meet him. I mean, there are several um, heads of state visiting, uh, visiting Putin and uh, without a result. So why should I visit Putin? So uh, there's not going to be any, uh, any result on... Um, no, no, I don't. Although before I became a president, the same question was asked whether I agreed to meet Putin. It was before for, uh, war. I said, yes, if there is an outcome of this uh, meeting, if there is no outcome, just visit Putin to, to, to tell my grandchildren that I have seen Putin. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, uh, I don't think it's, uh, there's no point. There was a question still somewhere in the back area? No? Okay, here in the front, the gentleman with the whiter shirt, yes. Good evening. I would ask, uh, what do you think about the growing Russian and Chinese cooperation? Thank you. I think we should very carefully observe and then watch what's going on. But I do think that uh, we are not going to be very close friends. And uh, of course, China is, has, has their own ideas how to run the world. But I, I don't think they, they run together with, with Russia. Yes, I saw some other hands somewhere. I'm trying to be inclusive. Oh, yeah, here there is a... Um, in the so many last questions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was like, hey, <laughs> somebody told me, yes, you have more time. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm not stopping this. Uh, hi, my name is Marius. 
You talked a bit about Russia's future. Uh, I was wondering if you think there, that there's a possibility of them uh, becoming a democracy uh, sometime uh, and what that would take in your opinion. Thank you. I think we discussed this already also in the beginning of the 90s when Yeltsin became a, uh, a president and later on also Putin was very democratic in, a, in the very beginning. So um, it takes centuries, I guess. So uh, it doesn't happen, happen soon. So it's not that easy to, to um, move from, uh, from current Russia to, to democracy. So it's, uh, and if you talk to ordinary people, what do I used to do is to talk to intellectuals. And they have completely different understanding if you talk to ordinary Russian people. So, uh, and you get a completely different opinion. And I have had certain conversation with uh, also ordinary people in Estonia. So, uh, and you start realizing what they, what they think. And it doesn't match much with, uh, with, uh, with intellectuals who fled away from, from, from Russia and living in, in Europe, in Switzerland or somewhere else. Yeah, there's been also a massive departure of their el Russian potentially pro-democratic elite in the direct aftermath of the um, starting of the war. So that also depreciates the, the chances of an internal reform. Yes, there were some other hands. Someone who hasn't asked the question yet, perhaps? Yes. Hi. My name is Frida Splendido, and you mentioned that you were reluctant to running for president. What's something that you didn't know about being president that you now quite enjoy about being a president? <laughs> well, I mean, in every position, you have to find something <laughs> which you enjoy. Otherwise, it's difficult to, uh, to be also a vice chancellor or, or any, any position. Of course, it's, uh, it's a different world. And as I said, uh, you, you become very superficial, whereas uh, one meeting after another and, 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 and so forth. And this makes you a bit nervous. I mean, this you didn't expect, to be honest, but it's so, so superficial. And it's not a bad word, but it's just uh, as it is. So, um, but yes, you enjoy. I'm, I'm today, I do enjoy. So. Uh, being here in, 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 in Lund and uh, the whole day. So this is something you usually don't get. Of course, when you're a scientist or rector, I feel today also as a rector because so many uh, intelligent people around and, uh, and uh, very nice conversations. So I enjoy these kind of meetings. So, and, uh, and of course, to talk to other heads of states and uh, to discuss and, and also have different opinions, as we, as we said. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's not bad. So, become a president of a small state. <laughs> uh, another message to the student. Um, I mean, your, your, your king and queen will be in Estonia in next month. So, uh, why don't you ask what I would <laughs> or I should um, tell them? So. Um, yes. Some further questions from the audience? Again, maybe someone who hasn't had the opportunity to, to express a curiosity. As we see, we're very open for both strategic questions and more curiosity questions. 
Hi, uh, this is actually my second question, but I've been thinking about this for a while. Uh, how was it to grow up in the Soviet Union? If you would like to share a bit about your early life. I did grow up, you see. <laughs> um, I'm 65, so... Uh, well, what you, you, what you do remember when... Uh, you remember good things. Uh, you have your childhood, and it's not, not much different uh, of a childhood from, uh, from maybe from your countries. You remember good things only, and you get married, you get kids. I mean, these are all uh, which are nice things. But of course, you, uh, you had to know what to say and what to say. And, um, and you, you, you basically you don't remember these... Uh, kind of atrocities what you have seen also uh, during the Soviet time. I mean, my grandparents were deported to Siberia and, and, and so forth. There are so many things which are not uh, nice at all. But you have to live there and, and to survive. So uh, this is also come some kind of lesson to survive and to survive till your country uh, becomes uh, independent again. So uh, what else can you do? It's interesting that uh, that some some uh, some collective memories mark people in some ways, and some others work. But also one thing: when I first went to Germany as a visiting scientist, well, well, of course, it was different. The shops were slightly different, but it's not a cultural shock or anything. But the cultural shock actually was that you, uh, when you start discussing with your colleagues, you realize that. Uh, you have seen these, these movies, you have, have not read these books. That means it's a completely different world. Different books, different movies, and you can't kind of, you know, take part of this conversation, even after second uh, beer. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's a cultural shock. I mean, this is, this is something that was different in, in, during the Soviet time. Other questions that you might have? Okay, even someone who already asked the question, if they really have a burning question, they can also raise it again as the, again, we're Till tomorrow morning? No, we, well, I, I am pretty certain that uh, we only have about six minutes max, if we are very generous. But we don't have to have them. Oh, yes, please. Hi, uh, my name is Max. Uh, what were the biggest issues for Estonia as a country uh, after they became independent? To become a real democratic independent country, it was a main issue. issue. Of course, beginning of the 90s, it was a tough time. I mean, it was, um, you don't have salary, to, you, you didn't have anything, basically. That's why a number of people actually left the country, especially researchers. They went to different, um, different institutions to work, work there. Myself as well, I, but I, was, I got a scholarship or a fellowship from uh, Royal Society. It was, happened by accident again, so, uh, so I ended mm. up in London and later on for five years in, in Holland. But there was a um, possibility to go back. There was a program which invited researchers back to, uh, to Estonia again, and I was one of them because... Uh, as my um, boss said, uh, he was a um, well-known scientist, uh, in Dutch, living in London. 
and he said, you can be a Nobel Prize winner, but you will uh, still be a foreigner. That means you want to go back at some point to your own country. Even if anybody is going to tell you that you are a foreigner, but you, it, you've got some kind of feeling that at some point one might say, and uh, that's why he said, and that's why I ended up in, in Holland together with, uh, with him. He wanted to go back. Ah, and you, in your turn, The same, returned. yeah, absolutely. And this is one thing I learned. I mean, you ask what, what, what uh, the message for students. It's very important to work in, uh, in institutions that have different um, background. I mean, from different countries, and uh, because different countries from cultural background, even in natural scientists, in natural science, they think differently. That means uh, you get more and more ideas to, uh, to, uh, to develop and uh, to test. Internationalization, right? Absolutely. That's, that's yeah. what we're all about. Um, literally, this should be the final question, I think, <laughs> because of the chronology uh, of the evening. So, um, who has the honor of asking the last question? Yes, no last question. That's. <laughs> oh, <there laughs> Uh, hi, uh, my name is Linus. I was wondering, after the Soviet Union, when Estonia became independent, why do you think the democratis uh, democra demo democratization went so well compared to other states like Belarus? Well, its answer is quite simple, because we had our independent state before the Second World War. That means our parents have been living there, our grandparents as well. They, have, they did tell stories, so we did know what the independent country means. This didn't happen with Belarus or even Ukraine, because they didn't have their own country. So that's why we probably managed to, uh, to, uh, to manage better. Democratic past. Yes, and I think this it was indeed the last question of the evening. Let's take a moment and uh, appreciate the presence of the President of the Republic of Estonia, Dr. Alar Kalis. A big thank you from the Student Afton Committee and the Academic Society as well for visiting Student Afton, uh, Mr. President and Anna Maria. Uh, before we finish, the members of Student Afton have a final question for the two of you. Who do you think we should invite to a future Student Afton? Um, well, next to Estonian president would be a nice choice. <laughs> Wow, this is a very difficult question, and I haven't really been uh, given this beforehand, so I have to spontaneously come. Only one choice? I have one choice? You can name two. Okay. Um, I would say uh, Ursula von der Leyen would be a good one, or uh, Malala. Ah, we'll try our very best. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Avslutningsvis vill jag också rikta ett stort tack till er publiken för att ni kom hit idag. Här i dagarna så kommer vi att släppa vår nästa afton som är grum om några veckor bara. Så att hålla utkik på Facebook och Instagram för biljetter. Once again, a big thank you to Mr. President Alarkaris and Anna-Maria Dutschak-Segesten. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. att du har lyssnat på Studentaftons podcast. Du hittar mer om Studentafton på Facebook, Twitter och Instagram samt på studentafton.se. Följ oss där för att inte missa nästa afton.